darling, we're the young ones, and the young ones shouldn't be afraid to live love while the flame is strong. 'Cause we may not be the young ones very long. Tomorrow, while we don't till tomorrow. Hi, everybody. This is Chris. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Young Animal Gatherer. This puts us one third of the way through this project. You know, that is, of course, if there is no relaunch, reboot, re-whatevering of the Young Animal line. Uh, this was always intended to be an 18-episode series, so uh, we're making some pretty good progress with our little revisit here. This episode will feature three segments, but five books. Uh, we have our regular four books in the lineup, plus the first miniseries. That's Bug the Adventures of Forager. We're going to start this episode off with Mother Panic number 6 and Doom Patrol number 6. Both of those originally aired on April 30th, 2017. We'll move on to Shade the Changing Girl number 8 and Bug number 1. That originally aired on May 14th, 2017. And then we'll wrap it all up with Cave Carson Has a Cybernetic Eye, which originally aired on May 21st, 2017. We're looking at another uh, two hours of uh, heavy-duty young animal action. Uh, we hope you're all enjoying this, and, uh, and we hope you stick around with us while we do the second two-thirds of this young animal line. See ya. In every lifetime comes a love like this. Oh, I need you, you need me. Oh, my darling, can't you see? Young ones, darling, we're the young ones. The young ones shouldn't be afraid to live love. There's a song to be sung, cause we may not be the young ones very long. It is the Young Animal section of the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. And we have two Young Animal books this week for everybody. Uh, both of them closing out arcs. It's from famine to feast, back to famine again. And That's right. Yeah, I know. It's really, <laughs> it's really messing with my digestive system. But uh, mm-hmm. first book we're going to talk about is what, Chris? Mutter Panic number six. This is uh, Broken Things Part Three, written by Jody Hauser with art by Sean Crystal. Um, we are ending the second arc here, and uh, we left off with uh, with our friend Pretty and uh, Violet not really getting along. Uh, Pretty was being a bit more um, proactive and violent mm-hmm. in his redemption or his uh, retribution against Gatherhouse, where Violet was uh, not willing to put a bullet in a boy's head. Um, we open this issue with uh, Mr. Layton from Gatherhouse. He's uh, rather annoyed uh, that many of his properties and holdings have gone boom in recent days. <laughs> Understandably, he's, you know. I, can I would that. imagine yeah. I'd be a little bit peeved as well. Uh, he's led to a car by some handlers who may or may not be as useful to him as his last power <laughs> movement. Uh, it's all a moot point, though. Layton's car explodes upon ignition. Uh, we can see in the background that Pretty is watching the event occur from atop a nearby building. Uh, we shift to Violet, who's out on a date with a young lady. She punches out yet another paparazzi. 
which is reported on by the Evening News, which answers a question from last issue. We didn't know if there was any comeuppance for her activities. And, yeah. Uh, we at least see that it's being reported. Um, and this news report is one that Pretty is watching. Yeah, it's kind of what he does. It's his, it's his thing is yeah. just to see things. Yes. Um, now, this leads to a pretty flashback wherein this is where, again, the, <laughs> you know, I, I'm a fan of the art, but it is sometimes a bit hard to, uh, to parse out. Uh, we get this flashback here where he or Violet, because they have the same haircut and the same build, uh, they're in the midst of an amateur wrestling bout at Gather House. After, uh, you know, taking his opponent to Suplex City here with a bridge, uh, Pretty deduces that the person under the Mother Panic mask might be Violet Page mm. somehow. Look at that, hoisted by her own fighting technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of whom, we do shift now to three days later, and she's on another date with the same woman from before, where she punched out the paparazzi. And they chat about that running with the paparazzi. Violet shrugs it off because the guy touched her first. And by the way, they also curse a lot in this scene. like An awful lot. Just, just an unusual amount as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, Chris too. Uh, Violet leaves the bar and we can see that Pretty is watching her while wearing a kooky disguise. There's that watching again. Uh, yeah, he really has a silly disguise right here. Caption says of him, they don't see monsters dressed up like real people. I guess like 19th century uh, chimney sweeps all real people, right? I guess, that, you know what I mean? They really did exist, so, uh, you know. The stovetop hat. Can I sweep your chimney, governor? You know what I mean? Oh, leave the urchin alone. Uh, anyway, uh, Violet enters another bar, slams down a drink. She's approached by a fellow who wants to buy her a drink, and she curses a lot because that's kind of what she does. Then she heads home, goes to bed, not realizing Pretty has followed her the entire way in his chimney sweep garb. (laughs) Pretty stands outside, watches as Dr. Varma enters the building, and this leads to another flashback. He recognizes her from Gather House and refers to her as the wielder of the blade. Sneaks up behind Dr. Varma and holds her by, kind of points his old-timey flintlock pistol at her and holds her hostage. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, mother's mother, her mama panic, is, uh, <laughs> is talking to rats like she does. Uh, she excuses herself because she hears a voice that doesn't belong. Uh, so she heads to Violet's room, jostling her and waking her from a very red nightmare. Um, she's in her mother panic gear and hands come up from like a red ground trying to pull her in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pretty guides Varma to her lab where he informs her that she will undo the spell they did. And it's here that we learn that Pretty was part of Gatherhouse's Project Adonis. Uh, Varma insists that her that plastic surgery ain't her forte, but Pretty doesn't appear to care. And he approaches with his precious pistol. It's a ridiculous pistol, too. It's like it is. It's like a blunderbuss or something. He's got to like stick like a like a Q-tip in it to like pack everything. I don't understand. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, before he can even finish making that threat, he's hit in the face with, with what looks like a construction worker's lunch pail. This was thrown by Mother Panic accurately. She, uh, Mother Panic demands that he stand down, and we get a few pages of fighting, during which a Mama Page frees Dr. Varma. And we should note that we don't get any symbiotic weir- or symbolic panels during this battle. There's no, like, cuts to a, a bird's eye or yeah, whatever no, it was. No snake around a pumpkin. You know, or a half-eaten yeah. apple. Like, like, that was such a thing in every issue. It seems to have gone away. I'm not sure if that... Not knowing what that meant before, I don't know if its exclusion means anything either. But it just, to, yeah. I think it's important to note that. You know? It might have. It might have just been a Tommy Lee Edwards thing. I, I can't even recall if uh, if there's. I been could swear symbols. it was in the last issue. Wasn't? Maybe, I don't I remember. I, th- yeah. I really think it might have been, but I could be wrong. Maybe it was. 
Uh, but again, uh, that was never explained. So yeah, um, whatever. Maybe we'll find out what it did or didn't mean later on. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty trips, Mother Panic, and uh, again heads right towards Doctor Varma. Our ghetto part Pied Piper stands in the background. This guy we've seen kind of in the shadows for the last few issues, and inquires if anything is wrong. His rats are ready to strike. Mama Page points at Pretty and says he doesn't belong. And so the rats attack, latching onto his face. <laughs> right on his face. Ooh, like all, uh, pretty much all face is what Yeah, you don't had. see a face anymore. <laughs> yeah. uh, now Violet heads in. She curses a lot and asks what's going on. And it's here that we learn that the Pied Piper is Otis Flanagan, the rat catcher. Wow. Make that the reformed rat catcher. Uh, we first saw him in Detective Comics number 585, April 1988. Mm -hmm. uh, he's just looking for a place to crash. Violet looks and says, eh, you've earned a free month's rent in <laughs> sicking his rats on Pretty. And then offers him a second if he takes care of Pretty when the rats are through eating. <laughs> I would think the rats would do most of the work there, really. You'd you know figure. what I mean? Just like whittle them down <laughs> and uh, sweep, sweep the rest up in a, in a dustbin. Sure. And then uh, Rat Catcher suggests dropping them off at Arkham. Uh, we wrap up this story with Pretty lying on the ground with his face nearly completely eaten off. And he's finally happy that Gather's effects have been undone. All's well that ends well. Don't you like a happy mm -hmm. ending, Chris? Did that make Love you? It. Did it make you feel good inside after that? <laughs> a warm, a war it's almost like the ending of a GI Joe. Everyone just laughing. Yes. Uh, so yeah, that was the end of that. Uh, the backup was uh, Gotham Radio Part Six uh, Hundred, maybe it feels like. <laughs> feels like it. This one, in a sense, may have been the best one because it essentially was almost just like the comic representation of an episode of the show that we're supposed to have all these feelings about. Yeah. Uh, where their new uh, super conservative uh, American flag bandana wearing host cracks down on Batman and explains how he's un-American and you know wrong and whatever, whatever the hell else. Um, but still, I, I just don't care about it. It's a, I don't I don't really understand what the stakes are here. What I'm looking at, you know what I mean? I see Crazy Quilt show up again. Yep. I don't know I what that means. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> It feels like the whole point is to uh, is to point and laugh at straw man McBandana head or whatever. It, it's I guess it's just so pointed and it's so precious. It's ugh. it uh, it it yeah. It's, it doesn't do anything for me. But but no. again, like like as far as coherency, this was probably the most because it was just <laughs> it was just the one thing at least. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just like a fake radio show. So. Uh, I I pretty much hated it, but you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, say what I say about it. But as for the issue, I think we may have turned a corner here. Don't, what do you think? I think Chris? we're getting there. Yeah, we're getting there. Uh, you know, if uh, if they keep this up, we might actually start liking this book. Yeah. Um, I still think, I, I and it might be you know puritanical, but I think the uh, the cursing is really really annoying. Well, um, it's it's flagrant, although. It is somewhat confined to Violet Page, and 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 this brings up my biggest problem with the book, which may be the point of the book on some artistic level. Is mm -hmm. I don't like the main character. No, she's I, still very unlikable. I think she's a jerk. I don't really want her to succeed, or or do do I feel really sympathetic towards her? Uh, we learned more about her and why and her motivations, but that still hasn't helped me to be like, oh well, okay. No, I I really don't think she should be doing what she's doing, nor do I think she should be famous for whatever she's no. famous for, which is nothing. Uh, yeah, I pretty much don't like her. And, and I, that may be the intention, you know, that here's an unlikable yeah. hero of some kind, but it, it doesn't fit any of my 
normal unlikable anti-hero you know any yeah, knowledge about check that any of those past. boxes that we that we usually look for yeah uh, I, maybe this is like a backdoor diversity thing where this is going to be the first uh tourette's addled uh, <laughs> maybe <laughs> Exactly. You find out. You find out that you've been uh, criticizing her all along for something she couldn't even help. For her, yeah, for her disability. I'm gonna be a. I'm gonna be a hate manga. Yeah, that's right. You have several million to pay out anyway, so you're fine. This is true. <laughs> but uh, but in, ter- in terms of storytelling, in terms of you know just just nuts and bolts of a comic, we do. I think we both like the art, although it could be yeah better or more clearer. clear in yeah. some parts. But I like it. Uh, it's definitely got a, its own unique style and. It, as far as like you know telling the story i'm not really having a ton of trouble there like i was in the first arc for example yeah the this arc I, i'd say overall is a is a is a thumbs in the middle to thumbs up where the first one was a straight thumbs which was a real thumbs down whereas yeah. this one you know and and some of the other conceits i like I, you know mama page's kind of weird psychedelic alice yep. in wonderland world and then now her friendship with the rat catcher. I, I, kinda, I enjoy that, yeah. Kind of dig that. Even the backstory of the gather house I have some interest in. It's just Violet Page. I don't have any interest in her. You know what I mean? No. Like, if she wanted to just fuck off and go wherever, you know. <laughs> that'd be just That'd fine. be just fine. We could just have the continued adventures of Crazy Mama Page. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and Batwoman move in and uh, she can take over. The that operation. would work. That would be cool. You know, yeah, <laughs> just slip Batwoman in where, where Violet Page was. Because she almost is like a cursy Batwoman in a lot of ways, you know. <laughs> Uh, it's like a Batwoman you don't like at all. Yes. But uh, what'd, you, what'd you give this one on the site? Uh, this is the highest scoring Mother Panic uh, mm-hmm. that, I, that I've done yet. It's a 7.5 out of 10. I uh, didn't want to crack it up to 8 because uh, there is still a lot of room to improve. Just oh, yeah. you know, like we've been saying here, the, the character is is not likable. And it's not a character that we love to hate. It's a character that we just would rather would uh, you know screw off and, right. and go away for a while uh, but uh I, I would say a strong 7.5 for me yeah i you know i'm right in the same place to me 7.5 is your medium it's you know, a c it's yeah. a c it's a you, here's a book that has, has succeeded and is not worth your derision it's not exactly yeah. a you know run to the store but i i would say you know if you've listened to what we've been saying if you know kind of if you don't mind reading a lot of curse words, you know, the, the setting, the kind of like mood of the comic book is cool. Uh, it's, it might be worth giving it a look-see. Um, mm-hmm. But I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't spend my last $4 on it. I'll put it that way. No. <laughs> so, you know, we'll see what happens. You know, as we go forward, this could turn around and become something that we really, you know, it's always a dawn of a new day whenever a new uh, issue comes out, as far as I'm concerned. So Sir. I definitely didn't think we'd be at these scores no you know four or five issues ago i was like oh man every time this book came up i was like oh chris is gonna be so mad <laughs> and, you're, and you're still kind of mad but i think you become less am, mad yeah. over time <laughs> yeah that throbbing in the back of my uh, tooth is, uh, is a little bit softer now <laughs> um anyway but the other one uh finishes an arc and this one's a little more monumental because we kind of waited a long time for this one is Doom Patrol number six, written by Gerard Way, art by Nick Darrington, Tom Fowler, and Tamra Bonvillain. Wow, is it January already? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Boo, we went right back in time. Uh, yeah, exactly. This was supposed to be done a couple of months ago, but uh, here we are. Now we pick right up from where we left off. Casey's just kind of standing regarding the smoking ash pile that was her parents. Uh, she's saying, Mom, Dad, uh, they're in the... Well, we'll find out where they are. We're, they're in what I thought was the parking garage of the... Uh, hospital but i yeah. turned out to be incorrect 
and there's a gross overflow of Danny flesh coming out of the past ambulance, and it's kind of getting dangerous, and this snaps Casey out of her reverie, and it's, it's time for everyone to cram into the uh, you know, present ambulance, Danny the ambulance, and get the heck out of there. It's time to escape. So Casey brings suits up and gets Danny ready to take off. She opens some kind of a tank, maybe a nitro boost. I'm not sure. It doesn't. I don't think it turns out to be too important. Maybe that's laughing gas. Possibly. Yeah, but that, that would actually make <laughs> a lot more sense. Uh, Danny's voice is coming across kind of fuzzy. Uh, there's no really a direct explanation for that. Although he did catch one hell of a beatdown from the Spectra, you know, a few issues ago. So I wouldn't be surprised if his uh, radio got a little touched up or whatever. They charted course for Earth and escaped just as the coursing Danny flesh almost touches them, which is definitely something that could have been very gross. Uh, Danny the ambulance busts out of the side of the Spectra spaceship, which I didn't know. I thought they were in this parking garage the whole time, but they were, they've been in outer space while they uh, deal with this uh, Spectra stealing, the, harvesting Danny's flesh kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, now, now it's a spaceship, sure. <laughs> sure, why not? And we've got uh, Danny making like a uh, pop-taut-bodied cat yep. uh, flying through space with a rainbow trailing behind him. And then we get uh, fake Casey. She shows up in the fake Danny, the ambulance, and they try to run real Danny off the road. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a fierce death spiral towards Earth. Uh, while fake and real Casey's race through the stratosphere, they take significant damage. Uh, the Spectre ship blows up because, eh, we, we were done with them. Anyway. Yeah, goodbye. Now, uh, fake Casey's fake Danny the Ambulance burns up in the atmosphere, while real Danny the Ambulance fares quite a bit better. They still do crash in New Mexico, but everyone's fine. Don't worry, even despite the fact that Casey's outside of the ambulance when yeah, she wakes she's up. She's clearly been thrown from the she's vehicle, fine. but she's it's still cool. Perfectly fine. Everything's great. So they've landed right outside of Janestown, Church of the Multiform. Cliff busts the gate open, they all walk in, and inside it's Crazy Jane, who's hovering in the lotus position before 63 adherents to her cult. This is the closest to Kay Chalice, uh, Crazy Jane, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, with, with the rosy cheeks and everything, from Grant Morrison and Richard Case's run on the title. She first appears in Doom Patrol, Volume 2, number 19, February 1989. Now Jane talks about the Gene Bomb, which is from 1987's Invasion event. This gave Jane the power to manifest her variety of powers, which are attached to the many people populating her multiple personality, personality disorder. Did they ever deal with this specifically, that it was from the gene bomb? Well, uh, the, like, that entire run of Doom Patrol came out of the invasion event, so it did. I, I don't know if it was ever said explicitly. I, I, I guess it was just implied. I've never made that total connection that Cliff, that's where she got her powers. But, uh... Yeah, because Cliff meets her at the hospital because he sees her painting in the rain. Yeah. But I don't know if they say that she had just arrived or if she'd been there for a while. I mean, I think I think she must have had MPD. That's what it was already. But then suddenly, but then it manifested they into power. power. I thought it was yeah. interesting. I guess it's a connection I ever made. Maybe I never noticed or whatever. I think sure. when I first read Doom Patrol, I didn't hadn't read Invasion, so I didn't have that context. Maybe I saw Gene Bomb and just ignored it. But mm -hmm. uh, anyway, so that I thought that was a little something. Yeah. Uh, now that same Gene Bomb is going to allow Jane to absorb her sixty-three member flock. Which is, for some reason, preferable and recommended. I don't know why. That's something they want, but that's fine. Sure. Uh, the Doom Patrol storm into the place, which really annoys Jane, and Cliff figures out that she's leading a cult. This is a funny scene. He's like, yeah. uh, wait a minute, is this a cult? Are you leading a cult, Jane? And, like, in front of everybody. Um, Jane forms an Akira bubble around herself and says she is the multi-mother, the all-Jane. And Jane is really ticked off while Cliff just seems confused by what she, what's going on. Larry touches them both in their foreheads and zaps them into Crazy Jane's crazy brain. 
which we know is the underground, which is a subway network that symbolizes Jane's compartmentalized personalities. Yes, uh, we have a uh, we got like a Cliff waking up down there, and he looks on the uh, on the map, mm-hmm. which he did, which he did in the Morrison run too. But now it looks a little bit different. It does. does. Uh, a lot of Doctor H stations. A lot, a lot of, a lot of yeah, a lot of DRHs <laughs> in there. Uh, now a subway car zips past, and, and Jane is on it. When the door is open, she says, "Get on!" <laughs> Pulls him in, mm-hmm. and then it speeds away. Uh, we we go to the back to the real world to Jamestown and a hubbub's a bubbling. <laughs> the cultists are none too happy that their deal leader has been zapped by Larry, uh, though he cannot cut the connection because uh, if he does, they both they both may wind up brain dead. Isn't that always the way? You know, you die in your dream, you die in real life. You cut the brain connection, you go brain dead. It's always always big risks. I had this dream I was eating a, a giant marshmallow, and then I, I woke up and my pillow Your was pillow gone. was gone. Oh. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so the Doom Patrol must fend off these uh, 63 tracksuit-wearing weirdos while Cliff and Jane hash it out. Uh, and uh, among these weirdos is Sam's estranged wife, Valerie. This was which interesting. Uh, which yeah. I, th- I think we actually saw a hint of this in the last issue that she was there. Uh, maybe didn't pick up on it because these issues have been so far apart yeah. that we sort of forget the details. But I can't help but feel like there was supposed to be more here. Yeah, I think they were supposed to build to this more because we did see her in like uh, she was in the epilogue last issue. Okay, but I don't think they. I think they maybe they said Valerie. And we but, saw uh, and we saw Sam with his son. With his son. And they were talking where, about how where you know mom, mom had left, left. You know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, they just didn't say anything. So yeah, there there was supposed to be more of a build up to this. I think that we did not get. And this will read better in trade. Uh, oh, for sure. <laughs> now, uh, Valerie explains that they embrace the coming gene bomb. And Sam's like, Gene Bomb? (laughs) (laughs) He he radios Ricardo and Flex Mentalo as they they would head up to uh, stop that bomb. Back in the underground, Jane tells Cliff that her mind has been usurped by a crazy personality known as Dr. Harrison, who is a doctor who who thinks she's a doctor. Mm. Uh, Now, she emerged after seeing a god die and being exposed to his blood. Uh, we don't know who this might mean, if this is something that's going to be filled in, or if this could mean uh, one of the first villains that she mm-hmm. ran into, a guy by the name of Red Jack. I think that was Doom Patrol Volume 2, number 20, uh, oh, right, May yeah. of 89. Uh, that's the one who, he was a fellow who was powered by pain, so he kept butterflies pinned to walls mm-hmm. so, he can, so he can feed off their pain. And he, um, sort of, and he sort of could do whatever he wanted, like, temp, you know, magically, he could, like, open up. Yeah. Dimensional, and he called himself God. So this this is the only thing I could think of uh, in Doom Patrol. But maybe we missed something, or maybe we'll find out something later. I don't know. Yeah, the only other thing I can think of is I'm trying to remember if she was around for the Rachel Pollock run because they did fight or they did meet. Uh, the it's weird. It's the Fox and the Crow. Uh-huh, uh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the, and they were like the Fox God and the Crow God. I I don't remember how that all wound up. But uh, I think if Jane was a part of that run, that would have been the last we'd have seen her until, you know, the halfway point of the Giffen run. So yeah, she was in that run, her. but she not for the whole one. So because I, cause they brought Coagula at. in, and I think uh, they yeah. kind of phased Jane out. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. this is Doc, this Doctor Harrison brought with her powers of mind control. So this is how she's able to get into the heads of these these you know, crazy cultists. Uh, her plan is to cure Jane by diffusing her different personalities into the unwitting cult members, and they think everyone will assimilate. Uh, assimilate, <laughs> but it will be the reverse. Uh, 
Uh, Jane's many personalities lied to Dr. Harrison and said the gene bomb would do the trick. But the gene bomb is also a psychic weapon that will destroy the most dominant personality in Jane's melon. That's convenient. So, That's nice. <laughs> yes. So it won't do that other thing that they <laughs> So in other words, uh, you know, we got Flex and uh, Ricardo going to stop the bomb, but Cliff learns that you can't stop this bomb. Yeah, we need this bomb to save mm-hmm. Jane. Just then, a giant Dr. Harrison ghost sort of stops the train and wrecks it, rips it open. Uh, just a, just this confrontation zaps Cliff and Jane back to consciousness, although I would guess that Jane would be the Dr. Harrison consciousness. Cliff mm-hmm. tells Larry to send Keeg, the negative entity, to stop Ricardo and Flex from, stop, from uh, you know, stopping that bomb that will stop Dr. Harrison. So a lot of stopping. Yes. Meanwhile, Danny has taken flight to intercept the bomb. I really, I really like the fact that Danny is just like very triumphant flying around this issue. That yeah. it's just, it's just a good aspect thing to know that oh, okay, that ambulance can fly too. Cool, go through time. It could go through space. It can fly. We're good. Uh, now, Flex leaps from Danny to the descending gene bomb, prepared to punch it. I'm not sure what he wants. He, he, I he's think like he's, punch he, it. he's riding it, you know, like like a cowboy. <laughs> I don't know what he wanted to do, but apparently he was gonna yeah he's gonna punch it open. But before he can, Keeg tackles Flex right off of it, football style, before he can do anything. It does, uh, the bomb does detonate above Janestown. Dr. Harrison is ripped from Jane's body and kind of floats away, goes away, dissipates. Mm-hmm. Cultists all snap out of it, including Sam's wife, Valerie. And that looks like that might be a happy ending. We don't know. But now the Doom Patrol is all together, uh, which that's a big crew of people and uh, yes. ready for future adventures. And that is the end. But we do have an epilogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terry Nunn, who we haven't seen much of this uh, no. this arc here, she visits some executives to pitch a food additive, which she claims has zero cholesterol, no trans fat, gluten-free, hypo- hypoallergenic, vegan, all-natural, and instantly makes any food healthier. And it ends with her saying, wait until you hear what it's called. What do you think it is? Uh, salt? You know, Maybe. I mean, except for the making food healthier, that pretty much salt is. <laughs> no, I'm sure it does. I'm sure. I'm sure salt makes everything healthier. I would think it does. You know, in moderation. <laughs> in moderation, Chris. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's even what what that's about. That's obviously going to go into the next or the future story. Uh, don't even know if it. I can't remember what. It's been so long since we saw her. I can't remember what she did last. Oh, that's, that's, I can't either. That, that is the flat out truth. Maybe, Maybe there's it's kitty litter. It could because be. We did have a cat lotion, right? That's right. Who, who got turned into a, a cat a humanoid? Humanoid. Anthropomorphic. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot of threads still frayed out and uh, hanging out of this one. <laughs> so there's more stories to be told. I hope we get them in a timely manner. As we know, the next one is in July, uh, written and actually I know it's like drawn and colored by uh, Mike and Laura. I, th- I think Lee is is writing it too. I'm not. I'm not positive. Uh, uh, I thought it was Gerard Way still, but I'm not sure. I, I almost wouldn't believe that he would give it up, but I, I, whatever it is, though, we know Mike and Laura are drawing, doing the artwork, so that's, to me... It'll look pretty. Definitely, you know, a, a must-buy whenever they do it. I always will check it out. As for the backup, almost not worth talking about. It's the regular stuff. It's the who's who on Forager the Bug. Forager the Bug Black's uh, splash page. Uh, we've seen those in issues for the last few weeks, I think. And, I think so. uh Gerard Way's letter that we've also seen advertising for Bug, the Bug comic. So uh, I I would rather see that though than what we the shit we get in Mother Panic. Uh, dead ass. I mean, really. I mean, give, give me a who's who every every week. I'll I'll be clapping my hands with glee as opposed to something that kind of get leaves a, a bad taste in my mouth. You know what I mean? Like exactly. I, you can't be mad at these other pages because they just are 
what they are. I know who's who's gimmick, even though it's running, it's definitely running thin. It's cool, you know what I mean? It's it's sure. uh, you see you see this type of page with this you know diffused Ben Day dots. Yeah, you really feel like you're coming right out of the '80s. So uh, yeah, we're, we're getting diminishing returns on it, but we at are. This point. But but, uh, but it is still it, definitely preferable to the to the other garbage, and it's still neat. And hell, we actually learned stuff about Mother Panic through it. Remember, we were like, oh, we great. did. Like, we actually it actually helped us to know some <laughs> oh, of the that's, characters. That's Doctor Von. <laughs> so yeah, there are there are uh, you know pluses to it. But anyway, it's, it's, I, we shouldn't even be talking about it this long because it's only three freaking pages. That we've already um, read. <laughs> for, as for the, this book, though, I did. I like this issue a lot. I have liked this series a lot. One thing that we don't talk about enough that I really it has to be highlighted is I think the art is uh, phenomenal for this, especially for the tone of the book. Uh, it's very something very pulpy about it, but also very, you know, it, it's, it has a very physical quality, but it is cartoonish. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not realistic art. I, I wouldn't call it. Uh, they, he does a great job, and I'm sure it takes a lot of time, whatever. But this run, this uh, arc, was really hurt by the delays. And Chris and I both think something happened that they had to rush the story this here. Very rushed. Yeah. Very rushed. I mean, this whole this whole thing with Jane. You know, when when we look at the way the rest of the book has gone, they leave you on a cliffhanger, and then they kind of like wrap up that cliffhanger. The next issue, you know, like. Cliff and Larry go to the negative worlds. They wrap that up the next, the beginning of the next issue, more or less. You know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. Whatever. Uh, the Spectra have the conversation about needing meat, and then they're already taking it. It, it seems to have gone in, in two issue kind of, I don't know, movements within the arc, you know, if you want to call it, sort of like mini stories within the arc. And this Jane thing just came down like a ton of bricks. Last issue, the whole thing with Torminox came down like a ton of bricks. You know what I mean? Um, something happened in the last two issues of these titles to jam a lot of story into a little bit of space, and I, the, yeah, book, the pacing is weird. It, yeah. it, it it suffered for it. Yeah, it really threw the pacing off. Um, both of us think, and I could tell you for sure, it you know it will read better in the trade. And if you've been oh. holding on and waiting, I almost envy you because I think you're going to have a better <laughs> reading, reading experience. experience. I really, yeah, I mean, really. Uh, but you know, we can't go home again, as they know. But, again, a high-quality book, and I did like all the things that happened. It's funny, because I'm always the one crying about, you know, these, these decompressed stories, you know what I mean? And here's a, here's yeah. a case where I'm like, yeah, they could have given it's us a little more. A little more, yeah. a little too compressed. But uh, um, overall, though, I, I can't pretend I, I'm not enjoy, I haven't enjoyed it, and I haven't enjoyed this, this series so far. And so I gave it a score. I usually hate giving scores like this. I always, I always hit the fives. Uh, or try to, but I really I, I I vacillated back and forth. I gave it a seven point eight. You could call it you could call it a strong seven point five, a week eight, whatever you want to do. You know what I mean? Uh, if, if if that that works better for you, but it really felt to me like it fell in between that that mm. area. You know what I mean? A, a good book, and I probably if I read the whole run, I probably give the whole run a higher score. I, I won't. Pre- oh, certainly. I won't take a stab at it now because I couldn't guess. I, like I, we can't even remember details from. <laughs> You know, four issues ago, because that was like November. You know what I mean? Like that was so long ago. Now I don't remember what the hell happened. But uh, yeah, it's uh, overall, you know, still a real good book. But I, I can't help but uh, not say that I wasn't disappointed by the delays and then the the pacing of the last two issues. Now, is this this issue? You know, we we were starting with the wrap up of the Torminox stuff, and the entirety of the Jane story started middled and ended in yeah. two-thirds of an issue it just seemed so 
you know, I'm basically repeating what you just said. It's uh, this was so hyper compressed that it, uh, it we didn't have any we didn't have any time to reflect. We didn't really have any time to absorb. It was just like Jane's here, save Jane. We're done. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to know more about like Dr. Harrison and and her effect and and because obvi- we're sure that there is more to it. Yeah, they they just didn't This thing yeah. with Valerie and Sam. I mean, this whole Sam character obviously is supposed to be more prominent, I think. Yeah. I and we haven't so. we haven't gotten a ton out of him. Uh so I I think I think we were supposed to see more with Terry Nunn at one time uh that I we bet. haven't seen. So and no chief this issue. Yeah, I think they couldn't even they couldn't even spare the uh, the page of, could, of Chief yeah. doing something weird because they had to uh, jam all of Jane's story in there. So totally, uh, yeah. There's a, as as I, you know, Chris and I talked about today. I was I said there's a story behind the scenes here. It might not be a very interesting story. Probably it might be just as boring as so and so had a schedule conflict and we have to wrap this up. Or but uh, there's something. This was meant to be longer somehow or uh, paced differently. You know, like I think you mentioned earlier that, that this should have maybe this should have been the second arc, possibly the Jane rescue. Yeah, maybe possibly or they get part of an arc or you know yeah. whatever it is. What 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 are you thinking score wise? You have anything on the on the melon? Seven point five. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I mean, I, you know, that's not a bad score. That's that to no. me that still speaks. It, this is a good comic book, but it does feel kind of uh, a letdown to have come down so far from this. From where I gave issue three a ten out of ten. Yeah. And now I'm here at the end, and I'm like, eh, it's a, it ended kind of a little bit disappointingly. But hey, we're comic book fans. We're used to disappointment, right? Right, Chris? It's not a big deal. <laughs> we're, we're, we're not used to anything but, usually. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. We're, we're pretty much steeled for disappointment. That's why when uh, a, a book makes a little nudge to get better, like Mother Panic, we're like, you know, don't know what we to do with out. ourselves. <laughs> you know, suddenly Mother Panic becomes the most celebrated book because it turned around from a nightmare to something decent. <laughs> it wasn't garbage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, what a crappy life. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so next week we have no young animal books. Chris, can you believe it? Uh, I can. I, it's actually quite believable, <laughs> but uh, we, we're going to come up with something else for that week, even though, uh, you know, some people had problems, but I don't care. We, we, we love to do our thing, so we'll do our thing. I'll tell you about it later, Chris. Don't worry about it. Okay. Um, but the following week, very exciting, we have a book we're really looking forward to, Bug the Adventures of Forager number one that we were just talking about. Uh, and Shade the Changing Girl, number eight. How about that? Two books I'm really looking forward to reading. Uh, Shade is going to be, you know, a continuation from when she bugged out and ran away from uh, her friends at school, or at the, I think at the prom, right? Wasn't that where it was? Yeah. And Bug, we don't know what to think, so could be anything. I'm going to be reviewing Bug on the site. Chris will do his usual thing with Shade, and we will talk about them here on the segment, as we always do. But... I think that's all we got for him this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? No, I think that'll do it. Well, until next week, folks, keep it young and animalistic. Besides the boy who is standing with you, what else is new with you?
everybody. Welcome back to the Young Animal segment on the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast. I am Reggie. I am Chris. And this week we have a new Young Animal book that's been highly anticipated for many, many months right uh, coming up. But first, mm-hmm. we're going to talk about one of our favorite books in the Young Animal line, the new issue of... Shade the Changing Girl. This is issue number eight. And before I get started, I want to thank you for uh, covering this for me on the oh, site. This It was I my was, pleasure. Uh... I got to put my Chris hat on. Actually, you know what I did is I <laughs> I probably sullied your reputation because I threw all kinds of uh, naughty words and, you know, uh, <laughs> I went I went my style with it. You know what I mean? I, I, I ratcheted it up to uh, obnoxious. So uh, oh, <laughs> and for everyone that, you know, enjoys those reviews, you'll enjoy them again. Issue nine. Don't worry. This was just a temporary yes. thing. I just stepped in to help Chris out. Thank you very much. Uh, now, for shade number eight, the discussion. Uh, the issue was written by the, the same person who always writes it, Cecil Castellucci. Uh, the original, the regular artist is back, Marley Zarcone, Andy Parks, Kelly Fitzpatrick, and Audrey Mock. Um, the cover is by Becky Cloonan. And uh, if you remember last time, we had that one-off issue with the uh, with the... Was it a spring prom or winter winter festival dance or something? You know, I couldn't remember what, what dance it was. I just said, like, school dance. I don't remember yes, what it was, but, yeah. The, the Equinox uh, <laughs> festivity or yeah. something. And, uh, and a Teacup and the other girls had turned on Megan and forced her away, or she just split. And where did she split to? She splits to the big city. Yeah, got Megan. The big we pear, they call it, right? Now, now the name of the... <laughs> the the big apricot is the problem. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this would be the, this would be the big uh, blueberry. Yes. Uh, so we have Megan, who we also know as Shade, has absconded to Gotham City, and she's having one hell of a good time. She uh, strolls around, uh, shedding those paisley madness drops everywhere she goes. Mm. Uh, despite the grumbles of cynical onlookers, this was, you know, I, I always complain about the swearing or cursing in uh, uh, Mother Panic. Yeah. But uh, it fits here. <laughs> this is this. Yeah, when she's when she's like being all purpley prose about how great Gotham is, and the yeah. dude looks at her, he's like, "Effing Taurus, yeah, go going away. to hell." You know, you know, I was like, <laughs> this this feels very familiar to me. I gotta say. With that, um, now she. You know, despite the grumbles of these folks here, she happily dumps her effects of her life into a garbage can. She uh, dumps her school ID or, you know, her school books, everything that uh, everything that could uh, tie her back to her old life, even though she said there was a certain amount of charm there. Uh, now, the wallet she throws in there has a patch with an alien face that reads, I believe in humans. Yeah, very cute, I thought. Yes. Uh, now, as Shade walks around Gotham City, she thinks of a uh, bizarre poetry, which is, eh. yeah, <laughs> but it is expressed in rainbow-colored captions, uh, with probably some of that Rack Shade influence, and uh, one healthy serving of uh, millennial teenager, or yeah. actually teenager for any uh, really any, <laughs> any era, gender. you know, and any That's... any gender, any time they all. Yep. I mean, this may be quoted back Rack Shade poetry for all we know. Come to think of it, Could but uh, yeah, it's it's pithy and you know it's very. Very befitting, I think, a maudlin teenager. Yes. Uh, now we switch over to Meta, uh, where Rackshade's old boyfriend, Melu Loren, is performing madness experiments on some unwitting subjects. That includes Lepuck, Shade's ex-boyfriend, the panda, panda-esque looking dude with kind of tentacles. tentacle wings or something. Uh, I've Now, I mean, they haven't technically broken up, but, you know, she's on Earth, he's on Meta. I don't think this is, the relationship is going to go any much further from here. These madness tests seem to have an effect of giving someone LSD, which is 
Probably about right if you want to give someone madness, I think. And Lepuck's going psychedelically crazy, and he's really not happy about it. He feels pretty annoyed at uh, Mellow Loran and everybody. Indeed. Uh, back in Gotham, we have Shade hanging out in, around Robinson Park in Gotham, and uh, that's probably named after uh, Jerry Robinson, mm. correct? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, now, she's manipulating one of those madness discs. Uh, it seems to drag behind her there. Um, and uh, Jerry Robinson was the guy who co-created Robin and the Joker, Uh Passed away not too long ago, uh, 2011. Yeah. Uh, Shade gallivants around the city, annoying people everywhere she goes, but still having one hell of a good time. <laughs> <laughs> she she gets on the subway, and there's like a, a cluster of folks just sleeping on top of one another. You, you can tell they all had one hell of a day. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Shade looks at it and refers to it as a multi-faced monster, which is uh, pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, now she's only observing the group asleep, uh, so this is when the mad her madness starts to leak out. Yeah, I mean this was kind of weird because I mean, people I've seen and I have plenty of times slept in the subway myself and seen people sleep on the subway and fall on each other, but this mass of people seems unrealistic. <laughs> However, I don't think this is her projection. Yeah, I think I think we're just seeing a bizarre sleeping <laughs> kind of a, <laughs> a rat king of sleeping people going on here. So uh, yeah, but then this is when this is really when I think she kicks into psychedelic gear. Big time, yes. Uh, she uh, steps into Skid Row to watch a junkie smoke a cigarette through a window, and she gives a homeless guy with a German Shepherd a wad of cash just for the hell of it. Uh, at Bocciolo Square, uh, <laughs> Shade brings a, a sword wielding statue of a dandy to life. That steps down and stabs a dude yeah. who's sitting at the base of it. Seems to just kill some guy. Why not? He kills him because he's got his, his little vo- his little voice bubble just has a skull. Like, <laughs> what did dude ever do to you? Uh, the park is uh, very likely named for Chris Bocciolo, who drew uh, Shade the Changing Man under uh, Peter Milligan's scripts back in the 90s, as well as a very, very uh, good run of Vertigo properties back then as well. Yeah, he did a little, he did a little bit of Sandman. Oh, he did the death. High cost of dying, and he uh, did see his his first work was in Sandman. He did a little bit in Sandman, but I, yeah, I gotta say, I find it. Why does he get a square in Gotham? Strange, right? Yeah, it's a little bizarre. He's not known for his Batman work. No, he did do one thing, but <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, he did that. Uh, he did an issue of Legends of the Dark Knight. It was issue sixty four uh, from September of nineteen ninety four. So, I, I guess <laughs> yeah, well, that counts. He did draw Batman once professionally. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, so uh, to end that bizarre two-page spread, Shade sails a school bus full of terrified people over the Statue of Justice, upon which she spray-paints, Aliens are welcome here. And a cast member from the black-and-white TV show Life with Honey is hanging around now for some reason. That's the show that she likes. I don't know where this... I think, I think it's actually Honey. I don't know why she showed up. Anyway, uh, the Statue of Justice is a ripoff of the Statue of Liberty. I mean... An exact ripoff, uh, except that instead of the tablet that reads the you know July fourth, seventeen seventy four, it read it's just a shield. Uh, this yeah. first appeared in the film Batman Forever from nineteen ninety five, starring Val Kilmer. If you ever saw that one, directed by Joel Schumacher, and it's also featured in Batman the Animated Series and the video game Batman Arkham Knight. So yeah. this this has a little bit of Gotham history, but frankly, this is like the most Gotham thing and Robinson Park yeah. that you see in the whole in this whole book. And it was uh, we'll talk about it a little more later, but that was one thing I found a little bit strange and disappointing. 
Um, mm-hmm. oh, now she's getting really excited, though. She starts really wigging things out around her to the point that there's a characterist, characterist, character, character, caricaturist, a someone drawing her picture, and that uh, guy. it's uh, it's kind of a 3D rendering of her head as Loma is coming out of the of, of the page. So, and the and the person can see it too. The person's commenting yeah. on it, so we know things are getting real wacky where wherever she is hanging out. Absolutely. Uh, back on uh, Meta here, we have Lepuck is still being experimented on, uh, producing Madness Goop for Mellow Loran, Loran, Loram, <laughs> and uh, Hellboy's sister, his assistant. Um, he's very, very, very unhappy with Mellow. Big <laughs> Mellow says, yeah, that's cool. That only makes you more useful, which is, uh, you know, probably the thing that villains usually say before they get beaten. Yeah, like the last thing they say. Like, <laughs> It's all going to plan when they get yes, Nothing the can go wrong now. Um, back on Earth, Shade heads to Midtown Gotham, buys a hot dog, and heads up to a skyscraper that has an observation deck. But I want to make it clear, this is not the Empire State Building. No, no, that's in New York. We're exactly. In Gotham. This is Gotham. This is some, but you know they, they don't they don't name this. I mean, we'll I, we'll, I, we'll talk about it at the end. I, yes. I, I, have, I have comments on this. Absolutely. No. Up on this uh, non-Empire State Building, she uh, stands right on the ledge and <laughs> makes the city all psychedelic for everyone to see. Also makes people think she's about to commit suicide. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which which, which you, you can't blame them, quite frankly. Right? <laughs> also, the now, observation uh, deck, this is really an untended, I mean, it's, it's just like a, a waist-high fence. It's just a railing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It, it, it should have a sign that says, try to step over me. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, over in the theater district, we can see that lights are glowing and screens are glowing. And uh, we have, uh, you know, advertisements for Shades Day Out. Yeah, she's controlled everything. But this is not Times Square. This is the theater no, no, that's, district. That's, of Gotham. that's right. <laughs> now, the Mockies have images of Shade and Honey from Life with Honey. And an odd for a musical titled Bats. That doesn't happen at the Winter Garden Theater. This is, not, <laughs> this is definitely not cats. No. Um, and uh, Shade walks along, happily licking at a giant swirl lollipop, and takes in some Shakespeare. And this is actually when we know that it can't be Times Square, because you're about as likely to see Shakespeare there as a certified Rolex watch. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> you know, only, only uh, movie adaptations and Disney theater performances, yes. please. Thank you. Now, during a sad moment, the people around her turn into blobs of watery tears. During a funny part, everyone laughs raucously. During a misogynistic scene, Shade gets angry, and she loves all of it. Uh, outside, she picks up a magazine that has honey on the cover, and then honey leads her away. Yeah, this whole appearance of honey, but I think this is just more evidence that she's really affecting the physical world around her. Yeah. Um, now back over in Valleyville, where she escaped from, Megan's parents are yelling at the cops for not finding their daughter. River's yelling at Teacup for selling out shade to those mean girls, and those mean girls are defending themselves to Megan's ex-boyfriend, Wes. He says she was a changed person, they say she was a bitch, but hey, they're both right. They, in ding, this ding, case, ding. you know, she was a bitch, then she got Loma's soul, and she <laughs> changed. So there you go, everyone can uh, settle down. Absolutely. Uh, now, back in Gotham, Shade heads into a museum on Museum Row. It only bears a passing similarity but it, to, but is not the Museum of the Natural History in New York. 
No, of course really. not. Uh, now, at the dinosaur exhibit, she goes inside. Uh, it, it, it's similar, but not the same to an exhibit. The the, the, the exhibit in said museum. Yeah. <laughs> Shade feels an affinity for the dinosaurs in the dinosaur fossils exhibit, uh, since she was a bird being named Loma in her past. Probably she yeah. refers to them as like feathered friends or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, laments the fact that she wasn't there when they were. Uh, Shade hops into the exhibit and brings a fossilized fossilized prehistoric bird back to life. Then she pukes up some madness, like literally vomits it. It's like, it's exhibit... so weird. It's like, where did that come from? But all right. <laughs> it's just a, a stream of it coming out of her mouth. And uh, the exhibit falls apart. And then uh, while the guard is actually looking for her, he's like, where'd the girl in the coat go? He's right behind you. I don't know why he She walks right her. past him. Yeah, but... Uh... <laughs> She, she she just skedaddles off to the planetarium, which, by the way, looks nothing like Rose Planetarium at the Museum of Natural History in New York City, uh, where she becomes one with the cosmos as Loma. She kind of, like, spills out of herself, her human body, and she's Loma in space. Uh, I think this is sort of a dream thing happening. While floating around, she sees Lepuck sitting in a box. He's in, like, a room, but one of the walls is removed so she can, you know, interact with him. Lepuck is surprised, and he's really mad to see her. She reaches out and says he should come with her. He says, I don't think, you know, I don't think he can, even if he wanted to. It just seems they're not really connecting. This is happening on some subconscious plane, I think, yeah. Uh, Lepuck says, it's not a game. I'm not a game. Then he says, they're coming. And actually, when I first read it, I thought that was a warning to her, but looking the way he's looking off panel, I think he's just talking about Melu Lauren and Hellboy's sister. Probably. Uh, but it's it's not totally clear. Uh, you know, he might be warning Loma of, of a something. And then Loma has more of a trip out where she envisions Lepuck as one of her fertilized Easter eggs. Like, the, what? what? <laughs> so weird. I don't really understand, but it's really bizarre. Uh, but then uh, one of the museum guards w- wakes her up and, you know, rouses her and says, you can't sleep here, kid. So she no goes vagrants. outside. Yeah. And she... Uh, <laughs> She sees posters for a band called the Sonic Booms, who actually are playing that very night at 8 p.m. in the Embassy Theater, which is apparently right across the street. So she runs inside happily, the front door having turned into a gaping mouth. And that's where we leave her. And that's where it is, folks, uh, for Shade the Changing Girl. Uh, There was the the backup that Chris hates, but it's there. Yeah, life with honey. Gender roles were a thing. Go figure. Yep, yep. That's about it. They uh, do a little joke. Well, no, there's also a profile of Doom Patrol colorist Tamara Bond villain and a detail. Oh, well, yes, there was that, of course. I mean, for that story. Uh, Yeah, that's pretty much it. They they, they, they played a little joke with the gender roles in the 50s, and they reversed them, and uh, it's life with honey, folks. But I actually like that little uh, coloring thing in the back. Yeah, it was very neat. It was uh, they broke down how uh, how she applies color to the pages of uh, Doom Patrol. It was, uh, the it was pretty neat to see. Yeah, I, I would love to see more stuff like that as opposed to backups. Life, Life with Honey <laughs> yeah. or these other nonsense backups. Like uh, I was the Skiolis, and of course the letter from your pal Gerard Way. So mm-hmm. people that have read the site know more or less how I feel. But how did you feel about this issue, Chris? I I thought it was uh, it was. Really dense, but really good. Yeah. I, I, I don't know why. It, I, we talked a little bit off the air how, like, some of the issues of this have felt a bit lighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe because they were, I don't know, maybe they were just drawn out as a chapter. But this felt like I was reading it for a really long time. And that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was just, uh, I was reading it for a while. I'm like, wow, I'm only halfway through. It, so it, it, was, it, uh, it makes me feel dense. like you've spent a day with 
her in yeah, a way, Bob, you know what I very, mean? Like, very, very true. And you do visit a lot of locations, you know, uh, you, you get around the city. Um, Gotham, right? Yeah, it's right. It, that, 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 that was one of my weird <laughs> problems with it. And, I, and we also talked about this, but, you know, one thing I hate to see is people go to Gotham City so that they can, you know, catch a glimpse of Batman's cape or they see the bat signal or something, some token mm-hmm. thing to let you know that Batman is still part of this universe. But on the other hand... They seem to have missed every opportunity to express that this was Gotham City. You know, the Empire State Building, I don't know, could have been the Bill Finger Building. Times Square could have been Bob Kane Square. You know what I mean? Little things yep. like this. They didn't They didn't do that. You know what I mean? They had, and then to put Chris Bocciolo in there, I was like, why? I don't really understand. You know yeah, what it's I mean? a callback to the to the wrong property if we're trying to if we're trying to depict this as being Gotham for sure. And th- and throw away an opportunity to connect it to Gotham. Uh, so that that it, uh, this wasn't something that I thought uh, made the story poor at all. You no. know, I didn't think it hurt it, but I just thought it was really strange. Like as far as I'm concerned, she could have been she could have gone to New York City or. Pretty much any American city, any you know, large sized American city, they all more or less have the same things that she saw there. So uh, I didn't really get the Gotham aspect to it. But one thing I do think that why this one read a little longer, uh, seemed a little denser, is because we got a lot of psychedelic stuff, artwork, yeah. and the last couple of issues have been a little lighter in that regard. Whereas I mean, pretty much once she goes to uh, what's the scene before the museum? Pretty much right before the museum, when she goes to to uh, the statue of uh, statue of justice. justice, justice. Yeah. yeah, like once she hits there, it's like every every scene with her is just a straight flooded hallucination, you know. So it's mm-hmm. uh, that made it a lot more dense. But I I did enjoy it a lot, and uh, this character uh, Shade, even even though she's flawed as as I perceive her to be, kind of a, just a teenage girl. Uh, as we know, who are the worst pe- worst beings in the universe? Um, <laughs> They're up there. But still, you know, I, I feel sympathetic towards her uh, because I don't think she's evil. I, in fact, I, no. I think I think she's a good person. She's just a little self centered and you know prone to poetry. So uh, I enjoyed it, and I gave it an eight out of ten. Yeah, uh, I I would also give it an eight. Uh, something I found interesting was uh, that one page we had in what is it, Valleyville, Valley Town, mm-hmm. Valley. Uh, yeah. Teacup was Teacup was pretty unrepentant. Yeah, I thought that was it, unusual. That yeah. was odd, right? Because it ended last one with her like being like, "Oh, Shane, or oh, Lo, whoever you are, I'm sorry." Yeah. But uh, here she's like, "Well, I had to do it because you you don't know what she's like." So it, it was strange that uh, a little bit of a 180 for her there. To be that way to River, you know what I mean? I, yeah. I, could, I could see her maybe have been the way to some to Wes or another person, been more defensive about it, but, you know, she and River had had this strong oh, relationship God. with yeah. Shade. Yeah, so that was strange. Maybe we'll find out why that happened Very later true. on. Um, I mean, you know, I think that the resentment against Megan is very real, and she sure. seems to have been a real bad person, so uh, maybe there was just no... She had to get her revenge while she could, while she saw an opening. But anyway, <laughs> we dug it, and I know I, I yep. see people out there, they're really digging it. It seems like more and more people are jumping on the series, so I'm glad to see that. Definitely, if uh, you know, it tickles, if it tickles you once, it'll probably tickle you two or three times. And then as many times as you let it. Don't you want to get? Don't you like getting tickled? <laughs> um, but the big, the big splash of the week for Young Animal Books was the first issue of Bug: The Adventures of Forager, written by Lee Allred. Art and cover by Michael and Laura Allred. Um, now, we're going to begin this book. I'm just going to kind of jump in, but as we go along, we will be calling out 
the Kirby, the references to Kirby stuff. Uh, <laughs> this is kind of going to be a difficult one to sort of convey, but I'm going to do the, the best. Parse, yeah. We'll do the best we can with this. Uh, so we're beginning this whole book. The first page is scenes from the past. Uh, there's the, the, the page is kind of cut up into narrow panels. Each one is adjacent to an even more narrow black panel with red lettering, and this is like Bugs thoughts you know uh but but he's basically thinking back to events in the past uh so the black panels theoretically get it taking place in the present day you get what i'm saying here we're sort of we're sort of going down memory lane with bug on this first page is what's happening so opening panel is bug without his mask he's sort of a handsome looking fellow he questions the prime one why he is not like the others uh prime one he would be the leader of the bugs of new genesis at first seen in new gods number nine july 1972 and the bugs of new genesis are sort of like the slave race of new genesis they live to serve they also have like buggy properties um they wear funny looking buggy suits because that's how they do on new genesis now, Bug asks why he is tormented by questions, and Prime One suggests there is more to Bug than he thinks, and he should find Orion for answers. Orion is Darkseid's second son after Calabac. He was traded to the High Father on New Genesis for his son as part of a peaceable arrangement as per uh, events in New Gods number one. Actually, first appeared in New Gods number one, February 1971. And uh, people familiar with DC should be pretty familiar with Darkseid and Orion, I think. Uh, yeah, because uh, the High Father's son was uh, was that Scott Free who was that, sent over. That was in, yeah, that in was, exchange. That was Mister Miracle. Yeah, uh, he got mm-hmm. sent. He 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 grew up in Apocalypse. Orion in grew up Granny Goodness's orphanage. Or exactly, something. and yeah. that, that's how he learned how to be the great escape artist. And then he, Big Bard, it was already there as one of his furies. Boy, it is a rich pantheon, folks. This new god stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Thaddeus Brown was the oh, first uh, Mister Miracle. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I, I, I think uh, I think a lot of people have probably fast forwarded, and I don't blame them, but that's okay. <laughs> anyway, Bug does eventually catch up with Orion, and Orion says he's a lowly bug. Remember, these are the this is past events he's remembering. Yes. Uh, Batman punches him in the face, Orion that is, and says his name was Forager. And now this scene happened at the end of Cosmic Odyssey number four, which came out in March 1989, which was by Jim Starlin and Mike Mignola. And this is pretty much the last time we've seen Bug, I believe. I can't mm-hmm. think. As a matter of fact, when when this book was announced, I didn't remember having seen him in Cosmic Odyssey, but looking through the trade, I was like, oh, there he is. Yep. Um, and we see how Beat beat the crap out of this device, which exploded and killed him. And this also happens in the Cosmic Odyssey, sort of. The way it ended, it was, you know, Bug looked dead. Darkseid seemed to want to punish Bug. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I think for the purposes of this, we can say he died. And, Pretty much. And, and, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, if you read Cosmic Odyssey, it, it might not line up exactly, but that's, it's more or less right, I would say. Yeah, he, it's, it's as he, best sacrificed, as he sacrificed himself to save the universe. And uh, now we are in the present day. Yes, in the in the present, uh, Bug bursts forth from a goopy cocoon, uh, seemingly uh, perfectly healthy. Yeah. Uh, he turns back, looks at the cocoon, and says, uh, "I didn't know I could do that." So, uh, and he did. 
Maybe. Uh, <laughs> he thinks of the wisdom of Metron, who is the new god who sits in the Mobius chair. Uh, some uh, newer readers might remember Batman taking a seat in that chair during That's the right. Dark Side War. Yep. Uh, now he makes a he, he makes a quip uh, about how Metron would say something about Bug being dormant, not dead, because science, 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 science. And stuff. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> Bug surmises he must have been stashed somewhere while he recuperated. And it would appear that he's in the basement of an Earth home, uh, some house on Earth, and it's uh, full of what most basements on Earth are full of, uh, junk. Uh, you have a seamstress busts, a banjo, a snare drum, and a creepy-looking teddy bear on the shelf under some mannequin arms. And the teddy bear begins to speak. I freaks bug out, as you'd figure, um, until an even creepier little purple ghost girl with no pupils for eyes comes along and grabs the bear and starts heading up the stairs. Uh, first, but, but, but first, she does give him a nice glare. Yeah, and it even, it even <laughs> kind of makes a sound effect glare. Yes. Also, I, I don't know. I don't know why, but I found the pile of mannequin arms creepier than anything. I don't know why. You know, so about all those hands. I think I was just kind of like, give me the willies. <laughs> I don't know. Very strange. Well, you haven't seen my basement, so... Oh, you're just, oh it's all mannequin hands, as far as the <laughs> eye can see, right? That's my collection. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, the girl, after glaring with the glare, she stomps upstairs in her pink galoshes. Bug follows. Uh, he puts on his uh, his stylish bug mask. His chitinous stylish That's bug right. mask. Um, in a disheveled room, there are monsters everywhere. They want to tuck Bug back into bed and pummel him with lullabies. He's the sleeper. He's not supposed to be awake. Mm -hmm. uh, bug takes care of them with some sort of whirlwind spin type thing. Yeah. Uh, and then he follows the creepy girl, who Bug is now referring to as Ghost Girl, up a nearly endless winding staircase. Uh, on a landing, there's more monsters. Bug barrels past him and finds the ghost girl at the top. She's sitting in a room with a, a complex array of dominoes on their, you know, short edges. You know, like if you're gonna topple them over and right. do a little domino rally thing. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't um, know how to describe this like in words. Yeah, everyone knows what it is, but yeah. It, it... But putting it into words is like, huh? It was weird. There, there should be a word, you know? They were, they were akimbo or something. I don't know. Yes. They were dominimbo. Um, now, Bug is talking with the teddy bear, through, through whom the ghost girl may be speaking. We don't know if she's a, a ghost ventriloquist. Hmm. Um, but the uh, teddy bear does refer to her as she and not I. Yeah, so the teddy bear might be sentient. We don't know. Uh, it's... Uh, Charlie McCarthy, uh, the teddy bear. <laughs> That's right. It, uh, it might not be relevant, too, as, as we'll find out going forward. But anyway, we'll see. Uh, Bug notices something's off with the dominoes, and he fixes it and says, Now it looks just like the Motherbox circuit program. The Motherbox is a computer used by the new gods on both New Genesis and Apocalypse. It's sort of like a catch-all. Everything, it opens spatial wormholes from place to place known as boom tubes. It's also like an important narrative device sometimes. When the reader gets lost, the Motherbox will chime in and explain what's going on a little bit. At least that's the way it was in the fourth world. Nowadays, the Motherbox, they, they utilize it. Lex Luthor's got one embedded in his... Uh, Super suit, so in his they, armor, yeah. yeah they, they got him all over the place, but uh, they used to be a little more rare. Bug is surprised that Ghost Girl knows about mother boxes, and Teddy doesn't have time for any of this nonsense. He tells Bug that the names are dangerous in this place and names have power, so Bug tells them to just call him Bug instead of Forager, and that's a big thing because Forager is a designation in his hive or whatever, and, and Bug is more of a personal name, apparently. Uh, Teddy can tell Bug isn't anxious to get back to New Genesis because they treat him well, like a bug. That's the that's part of his problem. 
Are you getting the idea yet? Yeah, you getting his problem here? He's uh doesn't like being <laughs> treated like a bug. So Teddy asks Bug if he's interested in saving the universe, and he says, I'm not doing that shit again. You know, I just I, I just got <laughs> out of there. I'm not doing that. Uh Teddy points out that by simply rebelling against High Father, he's made he's at just as much in his control as if he did High Father's bidding, which is like Truly a conversation you have freshman year in college when you first, you know, you uh, first drink beer for the first time. Uh, Teddy explains that the, a, real, a real rebel does what he wants and that sometimes conforming is more rebellious than protest. Uh, Teddy begins quoting Camus, that is Albert Camus, a 20th century French philosopher that subscribed to absurdism. And absurdism refers to the human tendency to find meaning in life. And the routine failure to do so. The fun irony of life's futility is absurdism. Indeed. Now, while Teddy Blath is on quoting Camus, <laughs> that's what I always called him. It's Camus or it's, Camus? It's Camus, yeah. Oh, because they even pronounce it here. Um, now, while he Blath is on quoting him, Ghost Girl squirrels the stuffed animal away in her shirt, then changes the dominoes back to how they were before Bug fixed them. Bug rushes over to stop her, and then a jolt of electricity leaps from one of the standing dominoes to his finger. This leads to Bug having a crazy sort of vision, and the dominoes, uh, they, they have uh, suddenly have DC comic characters on them, and mm -hmm. they spin around his head, uh, which are surrounded by lightning bolts and uh, that thing we all love called Kirby Crackle. Yeah. Uh, that that you know just I, yeah, that's like the only way you can describe it because I I'm trying to parse out what <laughs> the bits of it are and it's oh, it's, it's, it's like yeah it's just crackle dots it's like energy it's crackle yeah yeah, yeah. It, he invented it and there it is yep and now the characters on the dominoes include Garrett Sandford Sandman and we'll be seeing him again real soon Wesley Dodds who is the Simon and Kirby era Sandman in the purple and yellow costume yeah the not, black not the gas mask that's not how, the gas that's mask. how we yeah. most people know him he had another costume. Yeah. Uh, the Black Racer, who is the uh, the skiing new god. He's a, neutral, right. <laughs> he's a neutral character whose appearance signals death. I wonder if you ever met the Silver Surfer. I don't know. I yeah, the Surfer skiing. Yeah, they, that's definitely a race that should happen. Yes. Uh, the Paul Kirk Manhunter. It might be the Mark Shaw Manhunter. It's, it's an early Manhunter. It is, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Metron, the fellow with the chair. We have Atlas, who is a Kirby character who showed up in first issue special number one. I don't know. And we did see him again during the new Krypton arc of uh, Superman that, uh, what's, what's his face? James Robinson wrote. Because James oh, Robinson. Okay. Yeah, James Robinson might like first issue special as much as I do. <laughs> <laughs> he, he mined a lot of those characters. Wow. And we also have Omac talking about, about Brother Rye, and this is not the New 52 Omac monstery guy. It's no, the, no, this is the original. It's the 70s, the, yeah. With the the old school Mohawk. Actually, I also I don't know why I didn't mention him on this list, but uh, Dead Man is there. Dead Man is also there. Not, yes, not, he not, is. There's no direct or any relation to Jack Kirby with Dead Man nope. that I know of, but. There no, because that's uh, Drake, right? That's Drake created him, yeah. and really, you know, you really would associate him with Neil Adams as far Adams. as uh, artwork. Design. You know? Yeah, I don't, I don't think he was the first one to draw him, but I, Neil Adams really, you know, that was his to find it. To find it, but whatever, we'll find out, I guess, down the line if that has any, anything to do with anything. Because he is the only, he is the odd man out here because he's got really no Kirby tie to him for sure. Uh, now, Bug snaps out of the vision here, and he bumps into the domino array. Uh, the domino array, not array of dominoes. Uh, <laughs> he's, afraid, he's afraid that he just ticked off the ghost girl. But the dominoes somehow disappear, and now the ghost girl has also disappeared. 
Then Bronze Age Sandman, Brute and Glob show up. These are three characters. Ooh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, this is what we were mentioning before, Garrett Sanford. So I'm going to try to keep this as concise as possible. But uh, in the late 19th, and we, by the way, Chris and I did, <laughs> we did talk about this on our uh, weird comics history about the life and times of Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. So we can go look that up and find out much more about it. But in the late 1970s, DC had Joe Simon and Jack Kirby reinvent Sandman, who really was a dormant character that I don't think had been used, uh, maybe was in JLA a little bit, but they kind of wanted to brush him off. Or, I'm sorry, JL, uh, JSA. Uh, he became a superhero in a red and white, in a red and yellow costume who protected those dreaming, and in particular, a boy named Jed from nightmares. So these were prim- primarily caused by the Nightmare Wizard, naturally. That's sort of right in his name. Right. Uh, for sense Yeah. Uh, he observed Dream Space from the bank of television screens in some temporarily dubious location, like Dream Space, I think I believe it was called. And he was assisted by these two gross mutants, Brute and Glob, who could be released by use of a magic whistle. Later on, Roy Thomas would retcon <laughs> this character as Dr. Garrett Sanford. In, in the original series, he actually had he was just Sandman of the Endless. He, there was no yeah. human com- counterpart. And there were even more developments and retcons over the years, but we're going to leave it there for now because, boy, it gets, it gets wacky, and I don't know it if it's, if it's real, good. real deep, yeah. I, I don't think that's going to apply, you know. Uh, this really feels like very Kirby-steeped, and uh, but uh, we'll find out. So at first, Sandman mistakes Bug for a nightmare, but then realizes that he's the sleeper. Then elements of Bug's dream vanish just as he speaks of them, which is uh, like the teddy bear and the dominoes. Really makes Bug look silly. Yeah, I know. It's right in front of these new guys and everything. Uh, Bug's worried that he's dead in the waking world, which is a weird thing to think, but there's only one way to find out. So Sandman gently wakes him up by yelling his name into his face. First, Forager, but that doesn't work, so then he he yells Bug. And that works. Bug wakes up again, bursting from a cocoon full of pudding. Or phlegm or something. something. It's it's pretty uh, (laughs) gloopy, yes. Um, But this time he wakes up, Brute, Glob, and the Sandman are with him. Uh, You'd think that this would be evidence that that he's still dreaming, but somehow it's uh, the exact opposite of that. Uh, (laughs) They suddenly find themselves under attack by Werblinks. Okay, so in the first issue of the rebooted Sandman, which was March 1974, the villain was GE, General Electric. Electric. Oh, I knew they were bad guys. They're awful. They're the worst. (laughs) I think I have one of their refrigerators. Um, (laughs) General Electric is a World War II Axis-powered scientist who escaped to create scaly lizard doll robots called Warblinks. They were sleeper agents and now appear to be trollish, elvish things of human size. Um, and as they attack, hey, look, we got General Electric showing up as well. Yeah. Uh, he looks sort of like an emaciated Tony Stark with the face of Robbie the Robot on his head. <laughs> it's, really... it's it's like a weird domey, yeah. Yeah, like computer bits in a dome on yep. his head. Now, uh, General Electric ha- has got special uh, a special whistle of his own, and this one shrinks everyone and sticks them in, in a bottle. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> maybe he's a uh, model ship enthusiast. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's better. Well, more than one way to, to you know, capture people seemed like a weirdly sure. specific thing. But uh, while trapped, Sandman surmises that General Electric had, must have found some of the same element that makes up his own whistle. This is called Orichalcum, the fabled lost metal of mythology, says uh, Sandman. It was mentioned in several ancient writings, including the story of Atlantis in the Critias of Plato. 
Within the dialogue, Critias, who lived 460 to 403 BC, claims that orichalcum had been considered second only to gold in value. And it makes great whistles. Uh, whatever the case, a Sandman says it has the power to make dreams flesh, which would actually be redundant for most of my dreams, I'll tell you that right, but anyway. Aha. Hey, uh, General Electric <laughs> taunts Sandman for a while, then Bugs like, enough of this, and uh, busts out of the side of the bottle with the help of his shield, he just kind of crashes through using it as a brace. Uh, he's able to get the whistle away from General Electric, then unwittingly steps into an interdimensional hole. Don't you hate when that happens? That's the worst. I also like that he was like annoyed at having saved the universe despite <laughs> himself. He was like, oh man, I, I saved it I anyway. I to do this, yeah. Um, where will Bug wind up next? We don't know. And one thing I loved about this book right off the bat, Chris, is there were no real backups. No. It was just the who's who for Tamar Bon villain, the, the, the color fine. guide and a letter from Gerard Way. Glad to see it. We've got, we've got a mm -hmm. full comic here, folks, so... Already, that made it uh, head and shoulders above some of the other stuff that we're reading from this line. But uh, and it is very already. They very, very good, very good. <laughs> um, but I enjoyed this. What did you think of it, Chris? I thought it was a lot of fun. I, I've I've been uh, revisiting a lot of these uh, these Bronze Age uh, yeah. comics lately, and uh, it's just really cool seeing. You know, when I when I first read uh, this, that that story of Atlas. I, I wasn't expecting to see him in a contemporary comic. Well, there you know, it's just—it's just so cool to see how they're—they're uh, they're actually mining their own uh, deep and rich continuity to uh, to tell new stories. Yeah. And uh, I was afraid that—I uh, mean, now we know Cosmic Odyssey happened, so uh, you know that adds a level of, level of depth to uh, John Stewart's character because he failed to save a planet. Uh, you know, it, it's just so much DC goodness has just been. Re-added or at least acknowledged, which I think I'm always a sucker. I, I yeah. don't know how much fluidity there is between the Young Animal line and the DCU. Mm. Um, I, I don't know how you'd want to describe it. I think Young Animal can draw from anything in the DCU, but DCU will never draw from Young Animal kind of thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's acknowledging all that all that stuff and uh, Cosmic Odyssey, and you know, we, you know, this Sandman character that we mm -hmm. read a whole bunch about. It was real cool to see him, you know, become like a central figure because really the only other place I could think of, I've got, I, I have a couple of the issues in a collection of that '70s Sandman, but really we, I think you and I both know him mainly from Sandman, Neil Gaiman's Sandman, Neil Gaiman, well, when yeah. he's sort of a sad, pathetic character in and out in one issue, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, here we see, you know, the man himself in action with his two weird, two messent uh, helpers, mm -hmm. um, but it was really weird it was know? and and a lot of it, it i felt was you know the second time through i like that whole domino scene just turned me off at first i was like i i just mm -hmm. didn't know what 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 the point of it was and it just seemed to be a poor allegory for whatever they were trying to get across but on second read i was like well you know this really is like something you would see in dream you know they, sure. it really started to feel much more dreamlike and Understanding it in the context that, I mean, for all we know, the whole issue could be a dream, quite frankly, but at least we know that. Yeah, whole, we're not sure. You know, yeah, I mean, he comes back in and, like, even the whole idea that he breaks out of this, this miniature bottle, but then he's the full size again. You know, it's, it's bizarre, this book, but mm. the all-red art. I mean, it's, it's, it's oh, yeah. trite to say. Because it's exactly what we expected, and it's great. You know what I mean? This is mm -hmm. this is this is what you want to see. He's right in his wheelhouse. 
he's a great like styled after Kirby kind of guy with his own sort of uh I don't know fluid more fluid feel you know he's not as Kirby had a definitely a blockiness to his work uh I think that was just how he his style whereas all red is much more round yeah round and poppy fair yeah. to say oh definitely much more poppy uh and and yeah. I mean we can't we can't gotta give you know a lot of the credit to to his wife Laura just like the colors in this are just like leaping out when they need to it's it's absolutely it looks so good uh super sharp yeah so just I mean just on the looks alone I really had to give this a high grade even if even if the comic itself had been terrible garbage garbage, I would have had to say this is just it's for it's worth four dollars to look at as far as I'm concerned but I did, I did like the story, especially after another read. I definitely am interested to see where he goes next. I have a feeling this is going to be a sustained Kirby love letter. Uh, pretty and, sure, yeah. And there are worse things in the world that the, it could be, you know. Hope, <laughs> hopefully we'll see the Newsboy Legion. That'd be cool next. Uh, or, uh, be great. You know, some, some of the other crazy, you know, characters over the years. Maybe we'll see some of those young romance situations, you know what I mean, from uh, their early days. So... Um, yeah, I enjoyed it, and, and I ended up giving it an eight out of ten. But I would, I would definitely say, as we say sometimes on this segment, it was a soft eight. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm, I'm right there with you. The art is what's carrying the load here, mm. and it is, you know, I, I was getting kind of slaggy on the, uh, the last couple of issues of Doom Patrol for being very fan wanky, and uh, this is very fan wanky. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so I mean that's, that's like what it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This is a total Kirby fan wank uh, experience here, and, and I, I loved it for that. But I can see how uh, perhaps newer readers may not get what we got out of it. Uh, yeah. We we spoke a little bit off the air about how uh, how so much of this was uh, we compartmentalize these Kirby characters, even if they they aren't a part of the same storylines. Uh-huh. Where uh, I think we have the ability to do that because we've got the context where. Uh, Maybe a, a newer reader or a reader who isn't who isn't as obsessive as we are yeah. <laughs> might uh, might just see these uh, you know disparate characters and wonder why they're being lumped together. Especially the you know like the the Domino's characters. Yeah. Like there was you know I, I didn't even know one of them was Atlas you do because you you yeah. read that and but I mean I kind of know those characters but I wouldn't call I wouldn't call you know put them in the same group normally sure. except to you know anyway it was uh I w- I would love to know what people what other people thought of it um especially people I know there are tons of people I talk to all the time that they don't give a hang for Kirby folks I'm telling you I want I, you know I think the older generation needs to wise up to the fact that Kirby has not captured the minds of uh the latest generations of comics readers I don't think nope. but, uh you know what are you going to do that's uh life goes on and uh, we're going to go on next week. We're going to read uh, Cave Carson Has a Cybernetic Eye, number eight. And the week mm-hmm. after that is Mother Panic, number seven, beginning a new arc. Uh, mm-hmm. So we'll see. You know, we've been creeping up with our enjoyment of that particular book. Yep, it's but, taken uh, in the right direction. So we'll see. Maybe this is, you know, the dawn of a new day, dawn of a new arc. Maybe we'll, uh, this will be the one that reels us in for good. But I think we have gone on quite a while here, Chris, and I think... <laughs> That's all we got from you. Got anything else for him this week? Nope, that'll do it. Until next time, folks, I want you to keep it young and animalistic. Dear.
I'm Chris. And we have a swell young animal comic book to read with you today. It is Cave Carson Has a Cybernetic Eye, number eight. Written by John Rivera, art by Michael Avon Oming, Nick Filardi, backup by Mark Russell and Benjamin Dewey. Now, remember, we left them uh, last issue. Cave still missing his eye. He woke up after a month traveling around, and uh, the Earth, or at least Fawcett City, looked like it was a wreck. Uh, thanks to the Whisperer and Edward Borstein, just setting the stage for everybody. And if you don't know any, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, then you have not been reading the comic at all. So probably not. <laughs> so now the, we open up, we see Cave and Chloe. They're standing graveside, remembering Mazra, who's Cave's wife and Chloe's mother, also the former princess of Muldrug, which is the underworld city or world. Um, but then a couple of captions right opening up tell us we're at Foster City on a different Earth, which I thought was a strange thing, Chris. You know, just like hmm. right off the right off the bat. In a way, in a in a way, it was good to get that right up front. But in another way, it was like, oh, okay. kind of took my wind took the wind out of my sails. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, so <laughs> it, it's not even their planet or whatever their dimension. But that's mm-hmm. cool. Uh, but what, what was kind of cool is that Cave and Chloe they're not even at Mazra's grave. They're at where her grave would be on their Earth. And it belongs to a guy named Michael Pembroke, and that's the title of this story is Rest in Peace, Michael Pembroke. I did a quick search, couldn't find any Michael Pembroke that seemed to apply to uh, comics or geology or brain masses or whatever. But uh, <laughs> I think he was the kid on the first season of Charles in Charge. Oh, yeah, the Pembrokes. Yeah. That, the Pembrokes. Yes. That's, what, that's what you mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. The Pembroke family. Those were the, the non-California-looking cool family. Those yeah, the, not the blonde ones. Exactly, the, the boring brunettes with glasses. <laughs> uh, anyway, so right after that, Cave assembles the troops, gives somewhat of a dour pep talk to them. It's sort of downer. Uh, <laughs> and this is all, practically a splash page. It's got a couple of three short uh, panels at the bottom. And it's a really colorful. Um, it's got this psychedelic orange and green kind of shifting pattern behind Cave while he's talking about it, and in that pattern are like depictions of the things he's talking about. We, you know, that that have happened over the past seven issues, or really more recently. But yeah, basically that we've been dealing with since the beginning of the book. But to me, when I see this in Cave, I take it to mean that he's eaten night pudding. Yeah. Right? Uh, I, mm-hmm. and, and this is something we're going to see throughout this issue is a lot of interesting design choices from a art standpoint that hampered the storytelling uh, a bit that was kind of a, a little bit of a problem for me um it's it's not like it's uh impossible to follow or anything but uh this is already such an unusual looking book i really need all the help i can get when, when it comes to understanding <laughs> the uh general story but anyway he basically tells everybody just like you know, you've all been sacrificed uh, and done a lot for me, and we're going to do some more of it. So saddle up and let's let's head out. Certainly. And then uh, elsewhere in Fawcett, on whatever planet we're on here, uh, Edward Borstein and the Whisperer in their joined guise as a multicolored, floating, pulpy, disgusting <laughs> brain thing, they discover a new power. 
by stripping away the flesh covering a, cad- a cadaver's eyes, they can expose a glowing blue strip of skull along the eye sc- sockets. Oh, nice. It's really, it's, <laughs> and, and, you know, we talk about Oming having such a, a you know, distinct cartoony style. Yeah. <laughs> having a flap of skin just hanging from the side of their faces. It's, it's pretty graphic, yeah. You, you, it is. You see, the, you is. see the depth of it, too, you know, it's like a chunk. Oh, totally. Yeah. Piece of I had to, I had to go back a page and be like, is that what they, is that really what happened? Yep. In fact, it was. <laughs> and also, this also somehow makes them servants to uh, Borstein. Um, now, Edward's son, Paul, is also in the mix. He seems to be in an advisory capacity. Uh, Ace is there, too, plus a cat monk, if you remember them. Yep. Uh, everyone else is either eye-stripped zombies for Borstein or being threatened by a, an eye-stripped zombie for Borstein. <laughs> it's everyone's so, uh, everyone's it's occupied, cir- at least. That's good. It's the circle of eye-strips. <laughs> um, now, using a gross tentacle with a pink flower on the end to speak directly into Paul's ear, Edward informs him that he's found the exit to the dimension and they will be moving on. However, they will not go on until they say without saying goodbye to Cave. <laughs> we won't leave without saying goodbye, you know. Obviously, very <laughs> nefarious plan. Certainly. But, uh, anyway, speaking of caves, cruising through the zombie controlled streets in their stolen Mighty Mole. And actually, there's two stolen Mighty Moles, but we only see the. Oh, we guys, we see them both. The other one's kind of covered in fungi or something. Yeah. Schmutz, yeah. yeah. So they're, they're cruising through the streets, and the zombies are firing laser rifles at them somehow. I don't know where they got all those, but mm. uh, while, while he's in the car, Cave gets a wicked headache because the cybernetic eye is sending some kind of transmission to him. The cybernetic eye is still mixed up. He jumped out of Cave's face two issues ago and ran up to Edward Borstein monster. So he, they're, they're in cahoots or doing something over there together. So uh, Cave sees this as being a you know a warning and says we've got to get out of here. The mighty ball hangs a hard right, smashing right into a university, and inside that university of Fawcett City is Professor Mark Barstow giving a lecture to a room full of dead students. Lecture seems to be about astronomy and geology somehow, which kind of ties in to the backup a little bit. On mm-hmm. the front of his podium is a poster that reads, "Science is not a conspiracy." And uh, Professor Barstow was Cave's geological mentor, producer, and psychedelic guru. On Cave's Earth, he killed himself. Hmm. And Cave tells Barstow about how his cybernetic eye jumped out of his face and scampered into the Whisperer two issues back. Certainly. And uh, from here, we get a we get two-page splash of exposition trying to explain what has happened in the first in the last couple of issues. Um, now, this is about when we learn that Cave and his posse haven't just been traveling around the country for a month, while Cave was, you know. In and out of consciousness, I yeah. guess, recuperating. They've, in fact, been traveling throughout the multiverse. Uh, they're trying to hunt down Edward, clearly. Uh, and this is the first place he stopped for a while. Cave suggests Edward might be looking for people. And Edward is growing larger by the hour here. He just keeps plumping up. Uh, Barstow says he's probably feeding off of human misery, which he would find here in, in no short supply. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a destroyed world. Go figure. Uh, Barstow forgets, however, that what has transpired to make everything so miserable. Uh, Chloe suggests to Cave that if Barstow is alive here, then perhaps maybe Mom's alive, too. Mm. Which Cave shoots down immediately. He's like, we're not looking for ghosts. Stop it. Yeah. Um, it probably just can't take another uh, disappointment. Uh, Barstow also knows Johnny Blake, who was one of his students, uh, we think. Yeah. Um, now, Chloe uh, and one of the, you remember those Muldrugan Batman fans <laughs> with the, the half and with the belly shirts? shirts? <laughs> <laughs> 
They have a nice little uh, conversation here. Yeah, there's obviously something budding right there, but uh, sure. it's, it's only a couple of short panels. Uh, yeah. I'm sure it'll come into play. It's funny, you know, and so many of these comics, I mean, how long we've been dealing with the multiverse in comics now? You know, five decades? At least. And there's still always people that are like, oh, maybe on this planet, the person, you know, <laughs> my best friend is my best friend here, too. And it's like, that's never the case, okay, never. ever. It's always that person is evil or that person is a robot or whatever. Yeah, he's your goldfish. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like people, you know, figure out the multiverse, please. It's not. It's not that complex. Um, so then Cave gets another wicked migraine, another transmission from the cybernetic eye, and uh, immediately he he tells everyone to run. But uh, Edward Borstein smashes a, a gross, pulpy tentacle into the room, and mm-hmm. he's upon them. Uh, it sends everyone flying. All the, uh, Doc Fihal, who is the guy who Cave woke up to, who is smoking, a, sneaking a cigarette. Uh, in the last issue, he's done. He's cut in half. Uh, that's, oh, yeah, he's that's, splattered, yeah. That's about it. Wild Dog is bleeding out. <laughs> this is a part I really... <laughs> I'm dying to know your your opinion on this. He tells Chloe to grab her dad and split. He's going to go out like the Predator with some grenades, which I thought was awesome. Mm-hmm. She's like, ready to do that immediately. That's like his, It's like a dream, I bet, of his to do that, go out like the Predator. <laughs> yep. uh, instead, Chloe sticks a tampon into his wound to stop the bleeding. Is that... Did they do that in the scouts, Chris? Is that you know, a- <laughs> I I I could have sworn I've actually seen that in a in a war movie. I'll be honest, I I I bet it's not that you know, depending on the wound, it's not that crazy, but it just really came out of nowhere. It's gross. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, it shouldn't it, be gross because it's a clean. It, clean it, piece, it was but. just it was just it was just strange. I guess I guess with the idea of being Chloe, you know, showing like oh she could take care of herself, she's not a shrinking sure. violet, but it was like it just seemed like boing oh. Okay. Okay, we're sticking tampons in Wild Dog now. All right, that's that's what we're doing. That's cool, but whatever. That's what happens. That's uh, some field triage for a Wild Dog. Uh, while that goes on, Cave is just going full bore against Edward with this weird laser musket. I'm not sure where this thing came from. Or he, yeah, I don't know. Did he have this before? Who knows? He has so many gadgets, it could have been uh, anything. Um, and then just then, Edward releases that blue-socketed eye horde against them. It's like, it seems like hundreds of people pour into the room and... Uh, Cave tells everyone to hop in the Mighty Mole, but just then, Edward blasts one of the vehicles to bits and sends the other one careening off, damages it badly. Mm-hmm. Now, Paul's informed that both vehicles are incapacitated and all is going according to plan. Uh, Cave gets another headache transmission and tells everyone to hop in the only remaining Mighty Mole, uh, to which Johnny resists, so Cave knocks him out and dumps him in the trunk. Johnny's <laughs> kind of a douchebag. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And now, a cave will fight Edward on this Earth and every Earth. Uh, There are like silhouettes of cave resonating behind him against a purple and pink dotted background. Just more psychedelia. It seems like they're going to the well a little too often with it, but yeah. uh, it is what it is, and that is how we we wrap up. I, I looked at it first when I, when I first I saw it. I was like, oh, this looks like Cave on multiple Earths. But when you look at it again, you realize it's not. It's just the same image. It's just it's an Andy Warhol type. Thing. Exactly. Yeah. It's just yeah. kind of repeated, and it's it's cool, but it doesn't. It's not helping me understand the story anymore. There, Mister Oming. I'm sorry. I uh, I yep. wish I could do that, but. Uh, Anyway, it was cool. I enjoyed, I enjoyed it overall. The backup this time does have some kind of tenuous connection to the story because all the backups are, are like for the time being are going to be the wonderful world of rocks with Professor Mark Bartow, 
uh, who is the fellow that we met at Fawcett University. These are done, by the way, by Mark Russell and Benjamin Dewey, though. I don't want to uh, yeah. I want to look up Mark Barstow and on the internet. And yeah, tell he him. didn't really write it. They yeah. love it. They love his work. <laughs> so it starts with with something about an edible rock about the roast crevette. A kind of compressed salt rock. It was pretty interesting, actually. Like on the front page, just a little a little factoid about it, and that it's a real rock and a real fact about French mm-hmm. miners being trapped and surviving eating it. And then there's a story about how Mark Barstow, as a young man, uh, began his job uh, life working for SETI, the uh, extraterrestrial contact guys. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. South America, and but was lured over to, to geology, finding it more expansive and more you know, wonderful, and how astronomy and geology, geology is sort of the uh, superior to astronomy, which is sort of what he was lecturing on yeah. in the scene that we saw. So there was that connection, but again, this is not a, it's not filling in anything for the story. It's just sort of a no. cute little thing. Then uh, coloring page of Bane as Evil Knievel? I think so. Okay. Yeah. And then the same yeah. uh, the same uh, backups we had in the last couple of issues of uh, the Tamra Bond villain, Who's Who, and the color guy, which you haven't seen it, are cool. Yep. If you have seen it, then here they are again. Uh, You've seen it, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that that wraps up that issue at Cave. What did you think of it, Chris? Um, I think it was I, – I enjoyed it less than uh, I have previous issues. But, uh, yeah, I guess every every book's allowed a, a bit of a downtime. But uh, it uh, – I, I'm I'm ready to be past this opening storyline. I think, uh, I, you know, and and that that's me assuming that there are future storylines. I don't know if there will be. Yeah. I I don't know if just if this whole story was planned to be you know Cave versus EBX for you know a year. Right. Or if it's a, uh, or if we're gonna go to you know Brave New Worlds after it. Uh, either way, I'm I'm a little tired of. The uh, the tentacle monster and the and the Muldrugans and I'm ready for something new. I'm ready to do something a little bit different. Uh, yeah. you know, I did I, enjoy it, but uh, I'm still just looking forward to something different. You know, last issue the way that was the way it was done, uh, it was such a nice and actual surprise to both of us. How yeah. It looked like it was going to be you know a throwback Superman story, then it turned out to to be more of a dream, and then it turned out that. Cave wasn't even like, you know, didn't even know what was going on in the real world at all. It was a total like, you know, whatever, unconsciousness, uh, subconscious hallucination. Um, So that was and then that was a reveal at the very end. He steps out into, you know, the light of day and it's uh, Fawcett City is reduced to rubble. And it was like, wow, this is what's been going on. This is a big deal. Yeah. And this opens and with and it's immediately telling you it's another dimension kind of undercuts that whole thing. And it was like another switcheroo but yeah an upfront one it kind of it really felt like it, it put a pin in this whole uh in the balloon of this thing a little bit you know to let out some air the story for yep. me um because yeah, the state like uh, the stakes are just not there anymore because it's not happening on our earth so what do we care that's kind of how i feel exactly <laughs> no. it's like it's and maybe that's a comic book trading it's like oh well that's just the multiverse like what are there's yeah, like there's a million there's mil- infinite amounts just just sure. kill that earth who cares there's, there's yeah. uh, infinite numbers where that came from so yeah. it uh, uh also you know i mean more or less like not a lot of forward motion happens and story-wise in this which no. in the last issue was okay because we had the you know the uh, big reveals to keep us in- interested. Here it was sort of like a lot of chit chat, and uh, the psychedelia really made it a little bit more difficult for me this time around to follow, to understand yeah, what was much. important. You know, and uh, 
all that being said, though, I, I really love the style. The art is still so innovative. Oh, yeah. uh, the, and talk about the coloring, boy. This thing, it's a, oh, amazing. Things are leaping off the page. Still a highly enjoyable book. Still crazy as far as now there are these blue eye socketed zombies are in the mix. And the fact that Paul, I didn't even think Paul would still be in the mix. You know, mm. I, I kind of figured, like, you know, once Edward ascended to brain mass, he was like, later <laughs> later for all my human trappings, I'm a, I'm a big pulpy brain mass now. So, uh, but no, he's down there answering phone calls, feeling the deals, doing everything you got to do. Yep. So, uh, still into it, you know, in the end, when I, when I took it to my visceral feeling, I still gave it an 8 out of 10, because I still really, I, I did enjoy it. But sure. uh, it definitely was a down issue for me. Maybe, maybe the least good of the series, although still quite a good issue. Still better than a lot of things, yeah. Absolutely. Still look forward to reading this every time I see it. So I'll still be looking forward to it when sure. it comes out next month. What did you? What was your be your off the cuff score there, Chris? I'd give it a soft eight, yeah. uh, a harder seven five maybe. But uh, and and basically everything you just said. It's uh, not a whole lot of forward momentum. Uh, what we do get is it's all it's silly, but it is so undercut by it not being on you know Earth. What it, what I don't even know what the main Earth I mean, is I, called. Now. That's that's what's even sillier is like they're not even on like the DCU Prime Earth anyway. Yeah, you know? it's like not like anything. So the Whisperer could just swallow this thing, and it, it doesn't it, matter. But I mean, even even if they were back at where they were, I don't even know if that would affect. Our Superman or our, you know what I mean? Like I don't think they're even really. Well, none of them like showed that. up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's 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 uh, kind of a misnomer, but I see that I see multiverse, and I'm like, oh, well, then they're just kind of, and then they're obviously going to go through other multiverse things. I bet you it's going to get crazier as they go through the different iterations of the Cave sure. Carson, you know, universe. But uh, yeah, we'll see the Sea Devils show up, the challenges will show uh, up. That, it could get real awesome. Yeah, it could get real. Mm-hmm. It could get real. Tommy tomorrow will show up. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you could see. Uh, even you could start seeing. Uh, what's his name? Uh, from from Ran Adam Strange will be popping out. Yep. I'm sure, and guys like this. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, still have high feelings about the sure. series, but this was a little bit of a down issue for both of us. But uh, we do have a. Uh, my uh, young animal book next week coming up. That's Mother Panic number seven. Mm-hmm. And then the week Let's after that, continue the streak. That's right. Uh, it's if it's <laughs> if it's keeps going up a little bit, you know, we might actually end up saying that we like it by issue twelve. <laughs> that would be something, you know. The final issue. <laughs> you know, because we demanded is, it. This is now our favorite comic. <laughs> I mean, little by little. Um, yeah, but I mean, I definitely want to see the progress with that one. This should start sure. a new arc, right? Or no? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah. yeah this is the beginning of the third arc. This this will be interesting. And a new artist, I believe. So it'll be. Uh, we'll oh, see. Okay. We'll see where it goes with this. I didn't check to see see who the artist was, but I, I'm pretty <laughs> sure it is a new artist every arc. And then after that, we have a fifth week of the month, which means not only is there no you know young animal, but it's going to be very light on the comics in really? general. So we don't know what we're going to do, but we are going to be part of the show because. That's what we do. We get in. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that's all we got from. I do want to uh, tell everyone. I don't know if it comes. I don't want to blow up Chris's spot too much, but Chris is now a grad, right? Yes. A college grad. <laughs> that happened uh, last week, and uh, we, I congratulate him. I, I know all the fans out there, all the people listening, to congratulate him. And uh, if you want to congratulate him directly, and you know how to get at him, you can do so. If you don't know how to get at him, then you probably don't need to congratulate him directly, so just probably not. congratulate him in your hearts, and it will yes. uh, we will feel the feel love. Him. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but uh, congratulations to Chris. Now he's done with school, Thank and you. now it's 
full-time comics bullshit is his plan from here on out. So uh, that, That's what my nameplate's going to say. <laughs> that's all right. You've got that on your that's card. actually what my degree is yeah. in, so it's even better. Full-time comics bullshitter. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, so congratulations, and uh, we're all Thank real you. glad to see that. And, you know, um, I think that's all we got from this week. Anything else for him, Chris? Uh, the new artist on Mother Panic is John Paul Leon. Oh. Or John Paul Leon. Do you know? Do you, do you, or Jean Paul Leon. I'm getting you don't have a lot of uh, a portfolio from him to uh, reference. I I do not. Um, the uh, the art I'm looking at is very very nice though. Okay. Yeah. We like the last art uh, a lot. Yeah, uh, that Sean Crystal. He did uh, he did good work. Yeah. And I warmed up to the first. I mean, you know, I, I you know as much as this has been our least favorite book, it I, it's not like a criminally horrible book. Like, Not anymore. It's it's gotten better <laughs> over time. Listen, I'm talking. I read Hellblazer for the site, okay? If I can <laughs> if I can read Hellblazer, I I would take every, you know a million issues of Mother Panic over one issue of the Hellblazer. What a piece of absolute <laughs> junk that book is. So a little, you know, you got you got to just uh, take it take it like it comes, put it in context sometimes, and uh, that's certainly, how it certainly. is. So, but we will be there for that. And uh, until then, I want everyone to keep it young and animalistic. 